Morning, everybody. My apologies for being late. Stand back there talking about airplanes and didn't realize what time it was. Welcome to everybody who's here. There is a worksheet, by the way, if you need one on the lectern back there. John, would you mind getting those doors for me, please? We're in chapters 7 and 8 today. Uh, welcome to everybody who's here and welcome to everybody who's online joining us. Appreciate you coming to our class on John's Gospel of Signs. And those doors in the back are slowly closing, so we'll get started. Chapter 7, 1 through 13 is the first section. By the way, anybody got anything as we get started? Anything we've, we've covered that you want to go back and ask about or comment on? Nothing so far? All right, we'll just get started and see where it goes. Jesus was, at this point, avoiding Judea because why was he staying out of Judea, according to the first verse? Jews wanted to kill him, so he was avoiding Judea, at least as the chapter starts. The Feast of Booths was near. This feast is also called the Feast of Blank or Blank. Two other names for it besides the Feast of Booths. Anybody? Tabernacles? Not, not, not trumpets. It took place in the fall. It was the Feast of Ingathering. They bring in the harvest. So the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the word tabernacle simply means a temporary dwelling, like a tent, something you move around. And the feast of the indwelling or in gathering. Yes, Paul talked about that in Second uh, Corinthians chapters four and five. Uh, called us a tent, and another time called us a temple. Chapters First Corinthians three and six talked about the church as uh, the collective church as a temple, but also the individual as a temple. So. Where are we here? His brothers, Jesus' brothers, prompted him to go to Jerusalem because they, what What about them? Why did they prompt him to go to Jerusalem? Well, they, they were. It says in verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. They did not believe in him is what that big long line is for. Well, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall in that family while he was growing up? After his brothers left for Jerusalem, he also went up, but blank. John says, secretly. He went up in stealth. In Jerusalem, there was much controversy among the people regarding Jesus because of differing blanks as to who he was. And you'll have to skim through, scan through the first 13 verses. Opinions, views, views would also be good. Ideas, any of those words would fit, any of those concepts. 
People were trying to figure him out. Who is he? And it's a very interesting thing, I guess I would call it, that God would send his son into the world to enlighten the world on one hand, but also to be a sacrifice on the other. And for him to be a sacrifice, there had to be a sufficient amount, not only of disbelief, but of pure hatred. Why else would you want someone dead and crucified at that? And that's what the crowd would eventually cry out for. Crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and who? Our children forever. That, wow, but that's what they said. Only God could arrange such an irony that would work out to be such a blessing for us. We truly have been given a lot. Last line of that first section, they did not speak openly, however. The people who were talking about their ideas and opinions about Jesus, they did not speak openly for fear of the Jews. They were scared. They were afraid. By the way, that's a term that's, that's used in, in different ways. All of these people were Jewish, so they were all Jews. But there's also a, what's that? The, it, was, it was likely the Sanhedrin, but not just the Sanhedrin. It, this is politics as well as religion. There's a lot going on here. And it's like today, uh, we talk about the left, the left this, or the right-wingers. And, well, am I a right-winger? Well, to some people, I'm a right-winger. It just depends on their viewpoint. And sometimes I think I'm a right-winger because of what is under discussion. Well, yeah, I, I come down on this side of that. But I don't like to be categorized, and probably you don't like to either. What's your main concern in life other than truth? Truth. We want truth. And not everybody is concerned with truth. They might start out with that idea, this concept of truth, but they get themselves into a group, and then they begin to think like the group, and they want to think like the group, and they don't want to think outside the group. And so truth becomes a secondary motive. And so... In Jerusalem, you had people who were open to the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. You had others who were closed off, but not because of any objective reason, more because, well, this goes against what I think. Even the apostles, what did they ask Jesus in the first chapter of Acts? He's resurrected from the dead, and they are asking, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still didn't quite have it they were still thinking in terms of politics and Jews still think in terms of politics promised them that the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to show you things to come, reveal all truth to you. So our only hope for understanding truth is to read what the Holy Spirit revealed to them. Because you and I sitting here right now, we think we understand truth, but a lot of other people think they understand truth. But the only source of truth there is, is God. 
And we've, we've got to be seeking him out. And Jesus did say, if you sought, if you would seek, what would happen? You'll find. If you knock, the door will be opened. If you ask, it'll be given to you. And so it's not enough just to have an opinion. You've got to be looking for what is right. And Jesus will talk about that a little later on this chapter, about uh, the, the basis of judgment. All right. Uh, anybody got anything on that section? Yeah. Yeah. And it brings to mind all kinds of images and how your children grew up together and how they they fuss and fight amongst each other, but yet they're still family. Right. And it just it's just amazing to me that God was there as a child, obedient parents, but yet had to deal with all of the things that is involved with the Right. It's just an amazing and I was thinking about that yesterday, about what a, what a blessing it is to be able to trust God with all the things going on in your life that you really don't know anything about. You're raising children, and you're, you're trying to figure out how do, you, how do you teach and train these little ones in the way of the Lord to, do, to know right from wrong and to always choose to do the right, and to know that he's working with you. That's, that's such a great comfort and that you don't have to know everything because he knows everything and he's watching. It's like somebody said, when you go to bed at night, give the Lord your troubles. He's going to be up all night. Something like that. That's, that's right. <laughs> it's true. All right. Section, the next section, chapter 7, verses 14 to 31. In Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple to, to teach. That's what he began to do as soon as he got there, to teach. Jesus said that his teaching was not his, but his his father, the one who sent him. And that if anyone wanted to know its validity, they needed only to blank it. This is verse 17. Follow it, do it. If you do it, you'll find out that it's from God. Isn't that an interesting statement? There is a connection that all of us have because we are of God. Every human being is of God. We are all created in his image. It's like we have a a receiver inside of us that recognizes his voice, his signal. And you have to teach yourself, to train yourself to ignore that. You, You just have it naturally. I believe. It's like, uh, well, there's a passage in Ecclesiastes that is, it, it resonates with me because I think this is what it's talking about. But it's, you know, it's up for interpretation. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I think it's verse 11. Yes. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. That part about having set eternity in their heart. I have something inside me, you have something inside you that recognizes our eternal nature. There is more to life than what happens 
here on the surface of the earth. And that's what Solomon talked about. Everything happening under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, it's under the sun. That's one phrase that Solomon kept repeating in Ecclesiastes. But what was the other phrase he kept on saying in Ecclesiastes? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Under the sun, under the sun. Because eternity is is in our hearts. There's more to our existence than what happens under the sun. All right. <clears throat> Better get back to the worksheet or I'll never get us through this thing. He also made the point that if on the Sabbath day they would blank a man to keep the law of Moses, circumcise. Isn't that interesting? They're condemning him for healing somebody on the Sabbath, but they'll circumcise a man to keep the law. Then why should he not make a an blank blank well? How did he put it? An entire man, a whole man. You're going to circumcise a guy. Why can't I make the whole guy well? He was sick, and he made him well. It is now that Jesus says, and here's what we were talking about earlier. Do not judge according to blank appearance, but judge with blank judgment, righteous judgment. When Samuel went into Jesse's boys, who did he see and thought was going to be the next king? He saw his oldest son, Eliab, and he said, surely this is the one. And God revealed to him, nope, that's not him. I don't look on the outward appearance. I look on the heart. God has always done that. That's our lesson in life. He looks on the heart. That's why Solomon says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. That's why Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of his mouth, because what comes out of his mouth originates where? With the heart. Man, that's, that's a hard one. If, if you have ever said anything that you regret, I never have, but I know, I know some people have. Yeah, that's a lie. <laughs> Luke also says simply, and why did I say Luke? I have no idea why I said Luke. He, he might have said it. Should be John. Mark out. That sounds horrible to say mark out Luke and write John. But John also says simply that they were seeking to blank him, but no man laid a hand on him because his blank had not yet come. So what were they seeking to do? Seize him. <clears throat> they were going to seize him. They, they eventually wanted to kill him, but at this point they just wanted to seize him. Get, get that guy arrested, get him in custody. But no man laid a hand on him because his blank had not yet come. His hour, we will see this idea again his hour had not yet come in other words god says i've got a plan and it's not ready to be fulfilled yet and when it is everything will go just like it's supposed to and when you read the gospels this is this is like an unstated lesson that god has a plan and he will bring his plan to fruition regardless of whatever elements there are involved in it and that's another 
huge piece of encouragement for me that he has a plan that he's going to bring to fruition. You look in the world and everything looks like chaos. But God is still in control. He still reigns sovereign over the nations. That has never changed and never will. It's very, it's very heartening to know that. All right, chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. The chief blanks and blanks sent officers to seize Jesus. Chief priests and the Pharisees. So they were trying to seize him, and they've tried to seize him. They're trying to seize him again, but now it's official. There's, send some officers. Let's get these guys and commission them. You go and you grab Jesus. We want him arrested. On the last day of the feast, Jesus cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. <clears throat> Excuse me. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. By the way, what does that remind you of? What do you think of when you read that? Just a few, the woman at the well, a few chapters back. What do you ask her? Give me a drink. She says, how come you're asking me for a drink? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. He says, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink and I would give you water that springs up into everlasting life. You'd never be thirsty again. She says, man, you don't even have a bucket to drop down in the well. How are you going to give me this water? Well, he showed her. Where are we here? He said this with reference to the blank which those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. But whom had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. In other words, he'd not been put to death and resurrected. That's coming. Hearing this, some wondered whether he was blank, blank, or the blank. The prophet or the Christ. What's that mean, the prophet? You go back to Deuteronomy 18. Moses says at that point, the Lord our God will raise up a prophet for you from among the people like me. And you better listen to him. That's what Moses wrote 1,500 years before this is taking place in John's gospel. And Preston, if, if bless your heart, if you're going to get me a drink, are you, are you doing that? Because I've got a cough drop, and once I put that in, it, it really tastes nasty to drink anything. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. These things really work. But the taste... How many of you are old enough to remember, and I'm, I'm not saying a bad word, whorehound candy? Okay. My mom gave me some of that when I was a kid. I couldn't spit it out fast enough. Now I've grown up, and that's basically what this tastes like. But they work. All right, here we are. Bottom of the page. <clears throat> those who had been sent to seize Jesus returned. 
saying, No one ever blanked the way he speaks, spoke the way he speaks. Maybe I should have put two blanks there for spoke and speaks. But this tells us something about Jesus. He had a presence. And these guys are saying it, but you read it in other places in the Gospels. Jesus spoke as author, uh, one who had authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. Isn't that interesting? The leading religious guys of the day did not speak, did not teach, did not bring forth any information as powerfully and authoritatively as Jesus did. And this is an observation that people made. Yes. But when you stop and think about it, who's Jesus? He's God. <laughs> He's no wonder he speaks with authority. He is authority. He is the word, the, the living word, incarnate. That's what John starts his gospel with. In the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory. I would like to think if I was there, I would have seen his glory. And I would have understood, yeah, this is, this is the Messiah. But I wasn't there. And I really wonder, what would I have thought? We have such a benefit looking back on this history. And when I read about the patriarchs, let's say, in Genesis, or even those who were going into the conquest of, of Canaan in Joshua's day. They didn't have any of this to look back on. They, they had the history that had been passed down. There's no, as far as we know, written record of the flood. <clears throat> I'm sure they knew about those things because they spoke of them to some degree. But nobody had a Bible. To our knowledge, no written record. What a blessing it is to have this account, historical, accurate account, of what went on that we can read and and have faith through it. And that's what Paul wrote. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. We live in a great time. Last line on that first page. The only one among the Pharisees who attempted to defend Jesus was Nicodemus. Nicodemus. All right. Chapter 7, verses 53 through 8, 11. This passage is called into question as an original part of John's gospel because it is not included in the earliest extant manuscripts. What does the word extant mean? Anybody? It, it's existing. It's, it's right there somewhere that you can go and look at. It's not something that somebody used to have and it's gone now. It's extant. It's available for examination. You don't see it very often, but I wanted you to see it here because I want you to know that there are, there are over 5,000 manuscripts in, in part or whole of the New Testament. Most of them are partial, but they are, there are 5,000 of them. There's no other document, no other 10 documents in human history 
that has anywhere close to that amount of attestation historically. And those are available to be studied and looked at. Please note the following. And these are just some facts about this this text of scripture. Number one, it blanks like a gospel account that could easily be accepted as legitimate. It, It sounds, it reads, sounds, looks like a gospel account that could easily be accepted as legitimate. Because there's nothing in it that's all that out of the ordinary from anything Jesus ever said and did. Number two, it teaches nothing blank to the scriptures we know are bona fide. Contrary, contradictory, different. It doesn't introduce any new doctrine, no new teaching, nothing that's not put forth somewhere else. Number three, the narrative would blank blank going from 752 directly to 812. It would, it would flow smoothly. You could do that. Come down to 752, where it says, They answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. See, that's, you just left out 753 through 811. <clears throat> and it's like somebody in the past said, here's a story, and it may be a true story. Maybe it really happened, and it was kind of passed on word of mouth, and people knew and understood that it was there, but God just didn't inspire John to put it in his gospel. By the way, it's not in any of the other gospels either. And somebody said, I'm, I'm going to write that in. And so they put it in. And God's providence allowed it to stay, so we have read this exposed to it but it may not be part of the original number four for any claim that the inclusion of this text casts doubt on the rest of scripture it should be remembered that it is only because of the overwhelming evidence in favor of the rest of scripture that this bit can be blanked as questionable and the word i would put in there is identified how, did, how would you know a counterfeit $20 bill? First, you would have to know, what, what does a real one look like? What's a real $20 bill look like? And if you know what the real looks like, as a matter of fact, somebody had told me about this. I don't remember who, who told me and how far back it was, but when you're training somebody to recognize counterfeits, they don't train you on the counterfeits. What do they train you on? On the real thing. And that's all you need to know. If you know the real thing, you'll always be able to identify a counterfeit. And so that's kind of what we've got here. Anybody got anything on this? All right. How many of you ever heard this before? Have you seen the note in the margin that said this was not included in earlier manuscripts? Okay. Okay. Chapter 8, verses 12 to 59. Jesus calls himself the blank of the world, the light of the world. John starts out with that idea. He's he's the light, and this light was the life of men. Is that how that goes? Go back to chapter 1 and see if that's right. Verse 
Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Oh, back up in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's what I was looking for. Knew it was there somewhere. Jesus calls himself the light of the world, and again, we are reminded that no one blanked him because his blank had not yet come. No one seized him, touched him. Nobody was able to grab him, take him into custody because his blank had not yet come. His hour. His hour. It's interesting that the idea of hour is you. We're talking about Jesus who is an eternal entity. He, he is God. But there is an hour. In, within time, God has planned that there is an hour. Not a literal hour, but that's used figuratively. There's, there's a temporary period of time in which what I need to do is going to happen. My son is going to die for the sin of the world. That hour's come. But it's, it's, like a, it's like a countdown to his ministry. He comes along preaching and teaching. And he's telling them, there's a time coming. I'm going to be with you. And where are you going away? Where are you going? I thought he was going to commit suicide. Right. But yet, he says, my hour is not at hand. And he's counting, counting, down, going through all these processes until they do take him and falsely accuse him by night and change the accusations against him and then hold him and then beat him and scourge him and then crucify him. That hour had come. It hadn't come. It will. And when it comes, everything will be set. Everything will be right. I really want to buy. Debbie says we have enough appliances. But I want to get one of these waffle makers that you pour the batter in and you flip it and it beeps and tells you when the waffle's ready. Yeah, those are cool, aren't they? See? Syncopatico. Great minds. The reason is, regular waffle makers, I put the batter in there and I stand there and I think, is it ready? Is it ready? Is it? And you can watch the steam coming out of it, and I've sort of learned to gauge kind of by the steam, but there's nothing worse than a wimpy soft waffle. Amen? Get any amens? Okay. I want it crisp and crunchy. I don't want it burnt, but I want it crisp and crunchy. And you've got to open it up at the right time. That's such a tiny little microcosmic idea that... You've, you've got a certain window of time where things are going to be just right. God knows exactly where his windows are, and he's never early. He's never late. He's always perfectly on time. What I have to learn from this is that he's not just the God of the hour in which his son would die for humanity. He is the God of when things need to happen in my life. And he cares, and he can care. He's not like me. I have to take this issue and that issue and decide which one am I going to work on first and this one might have to wait because I don't have time and I don't have energy. I'm not that capable. God is not like me. Have you noticed that? He's not like us. He's God. And he is omnipotent. Don't make a good joke. When, how many tents is God associated with? Well, there's the tabernacle and there's the omnipotent. He's all-powerful. 
And time is not an issue with him. He lives in eternity. And I don't know how he works everything, but he knows how, and he does work everything to our good. That's why Paul could write it down in Romans chapter 8. So what's happening in my life, I get anxious, I get worried, I think this, this needs to happen now, or it's happening too soon, or whatever. But he always, he, he's got the perfect schedule. Not just for the great grand things of the universe, but for me and for you. For whatever's going on in your life, God has a schedule. Okay. Yeah, there's a time for everything. And that would make a good song, wouldn't it? Turn and turn and turn and turn. Was that the birds did that song? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm old. I'm so old, my sister, I remember my sister had that on a 45. Had that little record player that folded open and. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're out there. Yeah. How about we get back to this? We're going to run out of time. Jesus told those resisting him that unless they blanked in him, that they would blank in their blank. What's the first blank? Unless they believed in him. John is always talking about believing that they would blank in their blank. Die in their sins. Die in their sins. To their questions as to his identity, he told them that when they would blank, blank the Son of Man, that they would know it was him. Lift up. When you lift up the Son of Man, he's going to talk about that later. To those Jews who blanked on him, Those who believed on him. There were Jews who believed on him. He said they would truly be his disciples if they continued in his word. If you keep my word, you'll truly be my disciples. That's what we're doing. We're We're doing our best. Then they would know the blank truth. And this would set them free. And this weekend, we are all about freedom. To this, they said that they had never been in bondage. Which, by the way, is that true? Good night, no. (laughs) They've been in bondage the last several hundred years. First to Babylon. And then before Babylon, it was uh, the Philistines or the... uh, you go back in, in Joshua's day, in the days of the judges, the, the Syrians, the Moabites, I mean, they were in bondage to all kinds of people. And at this point, who were they in bondage to? Rome. Rome was governing Israel. They, don't, they can't even see what's going on around them. But he spoke of the bondage of blank. Sin. The bondage of sin. Jesus said that if Abraham were their father, as they claimed, they would not be seeking to blank him, kill him. Rather, he says, that they are of their father, the blank. 
the devil and that he was a blank and had been one since the beginning, a liar. Romans, keep, keep your finger there in John chapter 8, but go to Romans chapter 6. And it's, man, there are truths and there are true concepts, but the reality of the everyday is going to be for us glory. No matter what we call ourselves, no matter what God calls us, we are going to live in glory. So this is what we have in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. What does that mean? See, it's, it's the whole idea of slavery to us is tainted by the slavery that took place here in the, in the uh, early days of our nation, we think of slavery as a horrible thing. Yes, we're, we're talking about if you have nothing, you're in total abject poverty, and some rich man comes along and says, hey, how'd you like to have a job? How'd you like to have a nice place to stay? How'd you like to have some good food to eat while you're working? How would you like to learn a skill? How would you like to be in in a family group of people who will take care of you and that you can uh, learn to love them and they will love you and and we're going to work together and we're going to make my property prosper and we're going to be, it's going to be great. Which would you choose? The freedom of abject poverty Or would you choose to be a slave of this man who's offering you a life? Because that's what he's doing. And that's the picture we get with God. Yeah, I'm his slave. I'm his son, but I'm his slave. But it's it's really not even the slave of God. What does it say I'm a slave of? Righteousness. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And after a while... You learn to love your master, and so you don't see yourself as a slave to righteousness. You see yourself as somebody in love with righteousness because of, of the blessing it brings you. It's, it's like these crazy people who talk about eating healthy and how they've come to love it because it does them so much good. I don't understand them. But I look at them and I look at me and I go, something's going on there that I need to learn about. But this is so much higher than that. Slavery, but of the, of the, it makes you better than anything you could ever have other than that. So that's where we are with that. All right. Uh, very lastly here. They accuse Jesus of being a blank and having a blank. 
you're a Samaritan, you've got a demon. So how did he respond to being called a Samaritan? There's no blank there, just a question. You see how he responded to that? He, he didn't respond to the Samaritan comment. It's almost as if he was saying, that's not even an issue. That's not even a, uh, a slander to say that I'm a Samaritan. Because in his eyes, Samaritan is just as good as anybody else. Jesus also said that blank saw his day and was glad. Abraham saw his day. Wait a minute. How old would he have to have been to have seen Abraham? We're going back like 2,500 years. And that before Abraham was born, oh, he didn't really say that, did he? He did. Why did he say it? It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yes. He's openly identifying himself as God. That's what he's doing with this. And they understood that. So for that reason, they attempted to stone him. This is blasphemy. And from their point of view, it would have been because they didn't believe he was God. But from his point of view, and for the reality of it, it wasn't blasphemy. It was a, a claim of absolute truth. And if, if something would have happened at that point and they could have realized we're standing in the presence of Almighty God, how much would that have changed things? And for me, the graciousness of God to allow these men, and at times myself included, to stand up in his face and say, I'm not believing in you. And not strike them down, not strike me down. You're talking about a God of grace and mercy, a God of understanding, a God of uh, inconceivable compassion towards even his enemies. And that's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5. When we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And here we are at the end of our lesson, so... Lord, love you. Thank you for being in here. Hope to come back next week.